You're listening to Revenge of the Drive-In, the podcast where Jim and Patrick watch and discuss a drive-in double feature, consisting of horror films, spy films, exploitation movies, erotic thrillers, sex comedies, and the like. Our ultimate goal is to determine if these two movies, randomly selected from a list of over 1,600, would make for a good drive-in double feature. We will be going through the plots of these movies in detail, so if you're concerned about spoilers, feel free to check them out before listening to us, and we'll be sure to point out if and when these films are available on various streaming services. Be sure to follow us on Twitter for any updates. That's at driveinpodcasts, no underscores, hyphens, or spaces. And let's get started. I'm your host, Patrick, and I'm joined by... Jim. All right. The Invisible Man and Dolomite, two classics of very different genres, very different eras, very different, well, pretty much everything. I don't think they're too comparable in a lot of ways, but... <laughs> yeah, I think you can say that again. <laughs> yeah, unless you have anything else to say before we start, let's just jump right into James Whale's The Invisible Man. This is where you say mm. either you do. Sorry, or I was taking don't. a drink of water. Uh, no, <laughs> I don't have anything else to say there, Patrick. Uh, continue and please leave all that in. All right, so 1933, The Invisible Man. This is our second film from director James Whale, who directed Frankenstein. He also did The Bride of Frankenstein and The Old Dark House. Those are like his four horror movies for Universal. And this one stars Claude Rains in his first American film role, as well as his first talkie role, I believe. But Claude Rains probably best remembered as Louis, the French, is he like a police officer in Casablanca? What, yes. what would you call him? Yeah, he's like, yeah a, he's like a constable or something, a French. Yeah, I mean, he, he's, he's great Marshall. in that. He's great in this. Very different role. <laughs> He's got maybe my favorite moment of comedy in film history in Casablanca, where the whole, I am shocked, shocked to find out there is gambling here. And then the guy turns to him and is like, you're winning, sir. And he just takes it. He's like, oh, thank you. I love that scene. And I recreated it on Snapchat when I found a Casablanca-themed slot machine in Las Vegas at one point. Because I did actually win with that, so it was perfect. Well, yeah, he was also uh, Mr. Dryden in Lawrence of Arabia. He was great in that. He did oh, that's right. He's in that. He's in, I mean, he's in a ton of stuff. He's in The Wolfman. He's Lawrence Talbot's father in that. Yep. He's in Notorious, the yeah, Alfred Hitchcock movie. film. And he's, uh, yeah, I mean, he obviously got his kind of start, at least in American film, with the Universal Monsters because he's in this. He's in the, he, he's in the 1943 version of The Phantom of the Opera, which we have on our list. That's our earliest Phantom of the Opera movie because we don't, we're not doing silent movies because, I mean, the drive-in was invented cinema. in the 30s. I, d- I did a minor bit of research on this. The drive-ins <laughs> did not exist in the 1920s, so. Hey, are we going to do any Chaplin movies then? Are we going to do like... Uh, well, I mean, he was or... around in the 30s, but no. Commie bastard. <laughs> so, um, The Invisible Man also, of course, is based on a novel by H.G. Wells, the classic science fiction author of The War of the Worlds, among many others. This is as far as I remember, a fairly faithful adaptation of his work, which would make sense because he was actually alive when this movie was made, even though the book came out in like 1897 or something like that. He actually had approval over the script. And I think it was something like they already had a script kind of like about an invisible man that wasn't based on his novel. And then once he agreed that they could adapt his novel, then they changed it to be more like it. And I want to say there's a lot of 
there's enough similarities. I, I want to say his novel doesn't go full supervillain, which is kind of where this movie goes, but there's mm-hmm. a lot of stuff with Kemp and their kind of relationship that I remember in the novel that I read probably when I was in high school or something. But Before we get into it, I just want to ask you a question about, do you think it's like more exciting than Frankenstein? I don't think it's a better movie than Frankenstein. I think Frankenstein just tells its story so well. But I do think even just in the two years since Frankenstein, this is a more sophisticated movie in terms Mm -hmm. of what's going on with the camera work, in terms of the editing. There's kind of montage style editing, which you don't really see in 1931, or at least in the 1931 movies I've seen anyways. And so this does seem to be a bit more sophisticated. I think you could maybe say it's more exciting. I don't know. It depends on, I mean, that's very subjective, of course. it's definitely funnier than Frankenstein. I think yeah. you'll agree with me on that. <laughs> For sure. I, you know, I mean, you know, if, uh, the only thing I would want is if we could move the uh, old Baron or whatever his name was from Frankenstein into this movie. That'd be. He fits more <laughs> in this movie. He he he, does, he would yeah. be great as a police officer because the police officers are all like awkward and bumbling and yeah, they just have weird performances. So that would actually make sense here. But yeah, because yeah. he didn't fit in that movie. I just want to say that I agree with you about the camera work because that was what I was going to bring up. The camera work seems to be much more, um, well, I don't want to call Frankenstein static because it wasn't, but this one seems to be f- much more flowy and there's those seamless transitions from room to room, scene to scene. Yeah, the camera the camera's more fluid. Frankenstein, it's not as locked down static as like Dracula the other 1931 Universal Monster mm-hmm. movie, because that movie is, is it kind of feels like you're watching a film play. Frankenstein doesn't feel quite that way, but this one is, is a lot more, yeah, more excitingly shot, I guess. Also, we get um, the return of some fantastic miniatures, uh, matte paintings, possibly, yeah. like all the stuff in the, in the, like the opening scene. Yes, yeah. That stuff's great. And just in general, this is a special effects masterpiece this is a really early example of what hollywood could do what you can do on film with special effects that still i think looks pretty darn good today i mean you can say it's dated but the invisibility effects are pretty good yeah i agree i think there's only a few times when you can notice that their effect didn't quite work the way they wanted it to but i mean that's just such a minor complaint because 98 percent of the time it works perfectly yeah, I saw one string, which, again, going back to our scale uh, of 50 <laughs> sci-fi movies, if, if you see one string with an effect there, you're doing great. This time, <laughs> one string, we're 20 years earlier than yeah. it, The Terror from Beyond Space, 25 years earlier, actually, and only one string that I recall. That's pretty darn good. Yeah. I also like that they spray-painted a cat. <laughs> we'll get into that. That, that was kind of shocking. <laughs> So the movie begins with a stranger walking through the snow, the heavy, thick snow in West Sussex. And Jim, when do you think the last time West Sussex was covered in that much snow was? Uh, the late 1800s. Yeah, it's. I think it's been a while. <laughs> this is this is the <laughs> south of England. I mean, the north of England doesn't get, doesn't get a whole lot of snow. So I don't know about this area. <laughs> So this stranger walks into a pub called the Lion's Head. He gets a room, and he's very secretive almost. And, of course, everyone in the pub immediately wants to know his story. They're, they're all just, like, staring at him. You get the sense that this is a town that doesn't get a lot of visitors. Mm-hmm. And so he gets his room, he gets a fire, and he gets a little sandwich. And the sandwich is brought to him by jenny yeah and i mean i want to point out um he's pretty rude about asking for all the things he wants he's just kind of barking orders out at oh the, absolutely at the in staff 
Yeah. Which is Jenny and her husband, husband, who I don't know if we get his name. Whatever his name is. (laughs) <laughs> that's a funny little relationship that two of them have the uh jenny is uno o'connor who is an actress i can't stand she's in this and bride of frankenstein can't stand her in that either she's loud <laughs> she screams a lot she makes goofy faces so after jenny brings this stranger his sandwich she realizes that she forgot the mustard so she goes back and barges through the door after he had already asked for privacy and he quickly covers, like, his chin, his mouth area with a napkin. And, and, of course, he's very upset with her about barging in. And as she leaves, he pulls the napkin down, and we see there's nothing. Because, of course, he is covered in bandages, like surgical bandages, and he's got his coat. He made a point he didn't want Jenny to dry his coat. He wanted to keep that on. So he's covered in just stuff. When Jenny sees him eating and that he still has the bandages on, she spreads some gossip down to the people downstairs and is like, oh, it must be like burned or something. He's got bandages all over. And then, and then a couple of the of the pub patrons are like, ah, he's probably a, an escaped convict who hit, hit his head on the wall as he was escaping or something. That's why he's all covered up. I don't know about you, but to me, he looks so creepy in his bandages and his like welder's glasses and, and his tufts of hair sticking through. Mm-hmm. He's just such a creepy looking universal monster. I love this look. And I, I like it even better when he's got the bathrobe. Because that, that to, when he gets the fresh bandages, that yes, to me yeah. is the definitive Invisible Man look. Because it's like, it's so classy too. Because he's he's like, <laughs> the other monsters, they're literal monsters, right? Yeah. You know, Dracula's vampire, Frankenstein's monsters, this reanimated corpse creature from the Black Lagoons, just this reptile amphibian dude. Wolfman, obviously, but like he's just a guy. He's not technically a monster, <laughs> but so I like that he's like this classy kind of sophisticated. I mean, he's a scientist. We learn soon enough, and I don't know. I just, I just like that. I like watching Claude Rains, even though I mean, we don't know it's Claude Rains really, unless you recognize his voice because you don't see his face until literally the last couple of frames of this movie. <laughs> yeah. But I love him. The classiness of him in his in his. Uh, like smoking smoker's jacket yeah, i think it's yeah. like a bathrobe but it's like has that look to it yeah smoking jacket and pajamas so sometime during the day he's working on his experiments and we learn at this point his name is griffin and he's obviously is a scientist because he's working on this crap and then jenny and her husband have to have a talk about him because he is behind on his rent Jenny doesn't like him because he's rude, and when she goes up to talk to him, he ends up pushing her as he closes the door, so she falls down the stairs, and she screams at him. And, I mean, she does a lot of screaming, this woman. So, Jenny gets her husband, who's very mild-mannered and non-confrontational, she gets him to go up and demand to be paid. And (laughs) when... Griffin insists that he doesn't have the money, but he's expecting a payment soon. Then he starts helping him pack, and he's like, listen, buddy, you got to go. <laughs> That's when things get in- get interesting, because he, he gets a little violent, not super violent, but enough to get a police officer in the most... This guy, I think this first police officer might be my favorite, because he's just so like, oh, so wish, and, and he's just like, he doesn't care. He doesn't know what's going on. He doesn't really care either. There's a lot of weird police officers in this movie, but this one, this guy's one of my favorites. Yeah, he's kind of like the quintessential bumbling country sergeant. Yeah, and so he comes in, 
when he and a bunch of other people, bar patrons again, confront Griffin, he starts taking off all his bandages and revealing that he's invisible. And again, the effects here are pretty great. I actually, I don't remember how they did all this. I know I've seen like stuff kind of explaining it because I mean, for 1933, this is insane. Oh, yeah. This is nuts if you're watching this in the theater back then. I mean, now we've seen stuff like this all the time. I mean, we can make strings be invisible. Like, if strings end up in, <laughs> in a shot in a movie, we can just re- digitally yeah. remove that. But, like, obviously this stuff, more optical rather than digital, it's just tougher to do and hadn't really been done before. But <laughs> as he's doing this, everyone's kind of freaking out, except for the police officer, <laughs> who's actually pretty calm and he's just like well you see he's invisible you know that's the problem (laughs) it's like what (laughs) and then they all realize that okay we've got to get this guy before he gets off all of his clothes otherwise we may never catch him the best part about this whole scene right here patrick that you're about to say is like when they go upstairs and they try to arrest him one guy like he's in he's just in his shirt at this point and somebody turns to the sergeant and says cuff him and he goes well how am i gonna cuff a blooming shirt i'm like you literally just had the conversation downstairs that he's just a guy who's invisible he has hands i mean he means he can't see the hands because he's a dumb sheriff and he doesn't know if he's wearing the shirt on his torso or on his legs you know he doesn't know where the feet are (laughs) or excuse me the hands are (laughs) And this is where all hell breaks loose. The invisible man gets off all of his clothes. He is free now. And this, I almost want to call this a montage. It's not a montage. Mm-hmm. But this is where he just kind of wreaks havoc on the town. And and it's like mostly innocent, harmless havoc. Like he's not murdering anyone. But he steals an old guy's hat and just throws it in the water. He yeah. steals some other guy's bicycle and just rides it, you know, a couple dozen yards and then just throws it at some people. Like, you know, it's, it's all in good fun. This is this is prank stuff. <laughs> but I, I like this scene because this is where the scene where the movie really kind of becomes a comedy because we get the Una O'Connor performance and she's very clearly not playing it like in a dramatic way. But yeah, once the invisible man is just kind of fucking with people, then you're like, OK, yeah, they are going for comedy. Yeah, and it's actually kind of refreshing to see in a movie like this in something that's kind of straddling both horror and thriller, you know? I don't know. And so while all this stuff has been going on with Griffin, there are three other main characters that we meet. Uh, We've got an all-star cast here. I don't know if you recognize these people. I recognize two of them. One of them I wouldn't in a million years expect you to recognize. But Griffin's fiancée, Flora, is played by Gloria Stewart, Mm-hmm. who is the old lady from Titanic, if you didn't know. No, is she? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that is a long career. Oh, my God. And then her father is the angel Clarence from It's a Wonderful Life. I mean, he, he's easier to spot because he looks and sounds the same. Wow, I didn't even, I didn't even realize. Yeah, and her father, Dr. Something. Yeah, Dr. Something or other. Doc, Dr. Clarence is, um, <laughs> he's... Like Griffin's boss, mentor type figure. You know, they're doing science stuff. We don't really know. We don't really know what. And then there's also another scientist in the mix, and this is Dr. Kemp, who probably has his eyes on Flora as well. We see a a scene later in his home where he's just got like a framed portrait of her or like a photograph of her. And I'm like, okay, yeah, that's this guy. This guy's a little weird. So a little kind of Frankenstein vibe like we talked about with with, uh, Dr. Frankenstein's friend. 
Mm-hmm. Same kind of thing there. But he, he just, he's Griffin's partner. He's also a mentee to Dr. Clarence. And they're talking about how Griffin has gone missing. Flora is very upset because, I mean, this is this is the same exact setup as Frankenstein, really. <laughs> it's, yeah. that, that, it's the same script, basically, because in that, <laughs> the fiancé is upset. Like, hey, I haven't seen him. I don't know where he is. And, and um, yeah, <laughs> it's, it's uh, yeah. And at one point, Dr. Cranley, which is Dr. Clarence's real name, Dr. Cranley and Kemp discover the notes of whatever Griffin had been working on, but they find that he had burned them. So clearly not wanting anybody to know what he's been up to. But they do find, Dr. Cranley does find like one word or something, and it's the name of a drug that he looked into. Is It's some kind of drug that takes the color away from anything it touches. Mm-hmm. But then he also finds that, he, and he says that that's all that the English textbooks have to say about it. But he says that there are German books out there that said that tell of a study in which it was given, it was injected into a dog, and the dog went crazy after a while. <laughs> yeah. So that's so that's what's going on. We've got we've got twofold. We've got Griffin is becoming invisible, but this invisibility drug is also making him crazy. Which is pretty evident at this point, I think. Well, yeah, but, you know, they need to know what the hell's going on. Because they don't even know, they don't know he's the Invisible Man yet. There, He's just, he's just missing to them. Yeah. So Griffin then breaks into Kemp's home because he says that he needs a partner. This is a really fun scene. At first, he really just needs the partner to get his books from the Lion's Head Inn or whatever. But really, he's got, like, world domination on his mind, kind of. <laughs> And but this is great because we don't see Griffin. Obviously, it's a lot of a lot of chair rocking when no one's there, kind of stuff. And he even lights himself a cigarette, which which is a lot of fun. The effects in this scene, you know, they're all string effects. Yeah, they they must be. But uh, oh yeah, there's nothing. I don't think there's anything optical going on here. I mean, the chair is easy enough to do. Well, you know what I learned? Cigarette stuff's a little tougher, but but I I agree. I don't think there's anything optical there. I think that's well, maybe I can't remember. I looked it up, and it was for all the stuff when Claude Rains is wearing clothes. They made him wear like a black felt suit, and they filmed him on like a black felt background. So they okay. could edit him out and then place him into the film of, I guess, the already shot stuff. So it, it just looks like he's invisible. But I don't know. Like, I I know very little about effects, but that's, I think, amazing for the time. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, all this stuff that was just like string stuff, it, it looked, it genuinely looked like somebody was in the room, which was amazing. Yeah, yeah. The um, I mean, they clearly have the the cigarette lighting just because they're like, hey, this would be fun to do. Like this, this would have audiences shitting their pants, you know. And it's like <laughs> it works. It's it is really yeah. cool. I mean, the, the rocking chair stuff again. That's just easy shit. You, <laughs> I can pull that stuff off. <laughs> but the cigarette, I don't know about that one. And this is when Griffin asks Kemp to give him some clothes because he's thinking like, okay, you'll feel more comfortable talking to me if you can actually see me. And so this is when we get the bandages again and the bathrobe that looks like a smoker's jacket and the bandages kind of look like a cravat. And it just it's just the classiest looking monster you've ever seen. Oh, yeah, absolutely. He ends up obviously going naked eventually because he has to break into the pub to get his books and he brings dr kemp kemp is basically just the getaway driver 
for the most part, because Kemp has to sneak in, get up to his room, and just throw his books out the window. But he decides to fuck with the cops there while, while he's there, too, because there's some kind of inquest going on. Yeah. Uh, well, it's, it's the same lazy-ass cop from earlier who <laughs> Griffin did choke, but obviously not to death. He's there. And he's, he's a witness to the strange, invisible events that people have been experiencing, as are a bunch of other people. The guy whose bike was stolen is there. But there's this, like, chief inspector guy doesn't buy any of it, and he's just being an asshole. <laughs> and then uh, and then Kemp takes it personally as he's, like, as he's given the books away and he's walking back. The, this guy's concluding that, like, ah, this is all nonsense. So Kemp just starts fucking with him, you know, spills all the... The guy's ink all over him, and then all hell breaks loose. People are running and screaming. And I think this is, as far as I can tell, this is the first time he kills anybody. Yeah, this is... Uh, yeah, because what does he do? He, like, picks up... The Invisible Man picks up a stool and just... Well, he's choking him, him first, and then and then when he's on the ground, then he hits him in the head with the chair, and I think that's what kills him. Yeah. Then doesn't he go outside, and he goes up to Kemp, and he's like, Did you hear all that screaming? Yeah, I've just murdered somebody. He definitely didn't say he killed anyone, but... I think he, I can't remember what he said. I think he, he cracks a joke of some kind, I think. So at this point, the whole of England or the southern portion of England is on Invisible Man lookouts. There are search parties for him everywhere and people are worried, okay, we'll never see him. But I mean, he does probably leave tracks and they're thinking, okay, maybe we can catch him when it's misty and we can see his breath. But really no one knows what the hell they're doing. And again, we meet police officer after police officer and they're all really weird and they all give really weird performances going back to the first one who i like that <laughs> yeah. guy there's another guy who like talks like this like every line he delivers is just the most monotone slow thing and so okay, okay i don't know what his deal was and it, it's it's very clearly it's I, I don't think they're trying to do anything satirical here but but these are all by design they're trying to make these cops be pretty damn bumbling you know Oh, see, I thought it was just that they had uh, a bunch of American actors who they were trying to get to do British accents or something. Oh, no, no, it's no, it's definitely not that, I feel. Because I don't think they give a shit about the accents or not. I mean, in these old movies, you know, it, it's kind of like every movie, almost every like old movie almost seems like it takes place in Britain because you just have all these, like the, the first kind of generation of Hollywood stars, so many of them were British. Or, or I shouldn't say necessarily British, but like non-American, like Ingrid Bergman, for instance. Or they were just that British slash American. They were kind of that transatlantic yeah. accent kind of thing. So I, I don't think they care about the accents. <laughs> I, I think they're just these these cops are these cops are comic relief. Is 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 how I took it. So one night when when Griffin is sleeping over at Kemp's house kemp calls the police with a tip and he's like hey i've got the invisible man he's sleeping in my house get over here <laughs> and the cop says like okay we've only got five men and in the the game plan to get the invisible man is, is has thus far been surrounding an area with an impenetrable line of like hundreds of police officers because they can't <laughs> see him so they're like yeah. if we can't see him we'll at least run into one of us and we'll be able to take him <laughs> down there so they have to wait a bit but before the cops arrive, Flora and Dr. Cranley arrive. And so this is the first time Griffin has talked to Flora since, I don't know, since he went missing, since he turned invisible. And this is a this is a fun little scene. Flora's, you know, like, she, she's doing her, oh, you don't understand, this drug makes you crazy thing. 
<laughs> yeah. But then he's also doing his, like, he doesn't care. He's given a, this is a fun speech. He's talking about who's got power to, to rule the world. And, you know, with, with this invisibility thing, we will have a great, an army of invisible people and nothing will be able to stop us. It's like very clearly insane person talk. <laughs> like right after he's been given this heads up, it's like, hey, this, this drug makes you lose your mind and he's like no i'm not crazy and then he goes on this crazy rant it's it's a lot of fun and it's beautifully performed by claude rains i mean this is just a he's just the perfect actor for this i mean his voice is so commanding and he gives dignity to some incredibly goofy lines and speeches that i think a lot of other actors it just wouldn't have come off as threatening it would have been only comedy and this one we're, we're balancing laughs and genuine threatening you know dramatic plot and i, I don't think a lot of actors of uh, around 1933 probably could have balanced that as well as claude rains does here mm-hmm. yeah i agree so he then notices that the police officers arrive and Griffin, before going outside to deal with the police officers, promises to Dr. Kemp that I will kill you tomorrow at 10 p.m. and you will not be able to do anything about it. Which is which is an oddly specific. I would have been a little more like, you know, if, you, like if you're trying to scare the hell out of this guy. And maybe you're trying to kill him too, but you you probably want to say like you don't know when I'm coming. You're you're always going to be looking over your back shoulder, but it's not going to matter because you won't see me either. But I yeah. will I will yeah. find you and I will kill you like pull <laughs> Liam Neeson kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. And but but he says ten o'clock for plot purposes, of course. And so he then goes outside, and it's kind of more wacky hijinks with the cops. This is where you see the string as one of the cops is, like, pulled away by his feet. Yes, yeah. And uh, he he pulls the pants off of one of the cops, and he escapes with only the pants. And he ends (laughs) up chasing an old—well, he's not really chasing the old lady. She's just running away from him while he's skipping and singing along. Yeah, I love that. That was great. That's, That's a wonderful moment, yes. So the cops are kind of at a loss at this point, but they do discover they have one lead, and that's the whole Kemp being threatened to be to be killed at 10 p.m. They're like, okay, let's follow up on that. And they've got somewhat of a plan. At first, they make a point of not detailing it because they're like, he could be in this room right now, you know, which is smart. But then they end up detailing it anyway, so it's like, okay, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> you, know you know, it's, yeah. it's like... I mean, I think a couple times they say we can't get into it now because he could be here. And those are like two different scenes maybe where they say that. But in one of the scenes where they say that, they still end up going into detail on the on the plan. But the, <laughs> the plan has a lot of, there's a lot of moving parts here because Dr. Kemp, they're trying to get him in disguise because they take him to like the jail or something and they swap him out. He's in the disguise of a police officer. There's also a giant net employed. <laughs> and then there's also because they discovered that okay you know we couldn't put fresh paint on these big wall things because then he would smell that and he would avoid those so they put a thin layer of dirt on top of the wall and they said like if he's up there a little bit of dirt will fall and you'll know where he is and then use your spray paint guns and like mark him and of course in, in a moment I alluded to earlier, it's not Griffin that ends up there. It's, it's a poor little cat. And, <laughs> it's a, it's and then, a poor little white cat. <laughs> and then they, so they start spraying. And then they cut to the cat is like 
covered in in like probably oil or something it <laughs> doesn't look fun whatever it is but it, it's like it is so covered in whatever it is that it is literally dripping it's dripping <laughs> yeah that which is why i say i don't think it's paint yeah i don't know if it's oil hopefully it's something maybe Unless it's they just chocolate dumped a bucket of paint on it or something i don't know i mean maybe they could have i don't know like at least give the thing goggles when you do that though <laughs> At any rate, this whole plan, I mean, appears to be working at first because they also have Kemp get in a car and they said, like, skip town, just get the hell out of here, get hundreds of miles away, and don't come back till you hear we've caught him. And so it appears that all that's going on until Kemp discovers that Griffin is in the car with him and that he's known about everything going on the entire time. <laughs> and this is this is a really great scene because this is when Kemp binds or excuse me this is when griffin binds kemp so like ties his arms and legs so he can't do anything leaves him in the car and then (laughs) basically just pulls the emergency brake and sends it over a cliff where it explodes and burns up killing dr kemp fantastic moment yeah it was great that was a little tiny model right yeah i think so yeah, because, I mean, when it goes off the cliff, it like, one of the trees looks like, okay, that looks kind of like a model tree. But, like, the fire and, the, like, the little explosion that you have and the fire, that seems like it easily could be, like, a real car. But I agree. I think that is a model. It's well, yeah, done well. I was, I was watching it back, and I thought, I can't tell if this is a model or real. Oh, yeah. It's, uh, it's a very good model if it is a model, and I believe it is. But at any rate, Griffin then finds an old farmhouse to sleep in and he sleeps in the barn under some hay and the old farmer who's this old guy i think it might be the guy whose hat With he stole hat. earlier <laughs> yeah i think it's him he looks like him anyway but he goes in there and discovers that someone is breathing in there and he can't see him so he goes to the cops and is like hey visible man sleeping in my barn go get him and then the cops also discover that since it's snowing, this will be good because, A, we can force them out because it'll be cold and, you know, uh, well, I guess they I guess they know where he is because he's cold, but also, like, more importantly, the footprints in the snow. Mm-hmm. And so, again, hundreds and hundreds of cops get there. They light the barn on fire. They, oh, did you catch that? There's a little moment of, uh, I think this is a joke. I'm not 100% sure, but... Earlier in the movie, there's a talk of, like, any information on capturing the Invisible Man. There's a 2,000-pound reward. In the yeah. scene when they go to the barn, and they, they're talking to the old man, and they're like, oh, well, if we get him, there's a 1,000-pound reward for you in it. And they specifically <laughs> said that. They, they yeah. shorted this guy. They shorted this guy 1,000 pounds. I think that's a joke, but I'm not certain. It might just be a mistake, but I, I choose to believe that's uh, that's uh, an intentional joke there. <laughs> but anyways so they start the barn on fire and the door opens and griffin comes out and all they see are the footprints of course and so the cops shoot and then they see an indentation in the snow where the body fell so they rush griffin to the hospital where they find he's dying they said bullets pass through both of his lungs but he has one how they'd be able to tell they can't see him but yeah uh, you I got lung it. fluid going around, leaking, I don't know. <laughs> uh, <laughs> some lung membrane, well, I guess the lung membrane or whatever would be invisible too, but anyways, <laughs> yeah, who cares? So, 
Griffin has one last request, and it is to speak to Flora, who arrives and talks to him, and she's there in his to see his last breath as he dies. He becomes visible, and we see it's Claude Rains and his giant nose. <laughs> he does have a pretty big nose. I mean, it's not like a Roxanne nose, but but he has great hair. Yes, yeah, so he does have great the hair. Nose. Yeah. But yeah, anyways, and so that's how he dies, and this is probably the least abrupt ending of all, all the classic Universal monster movies, I think, because they usually just, like, end immediately. <laughs> like, what, like the Wolfman is, like, werewolf dead, boom, credits, like, what? <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah, this one we got some closure, so that was nice. Yeah, a little bit. I mean, I don't... I, I do think the weakest part of this the weakest stuff in this movie is is the flora stuff so but i mean i guess we you come back to it i mean it's not bad but anyways jim what did you think of the invisible man um i loved it it's such a great classic movie uh it's definitely one of those movies that you have to see and it, it's one of those movies that i love re-watching um i think i've only seen it about two maybe three times this might be the third time um okay but it's just fantastic i mean i just everything about it is great. All the effects are great, especially for 33. Mm-hmm. Uh, the acting by Claude Rains is amazing. We've already touched on that. Yeah, it's just an all-around enjoyable movie. I, you know, I, even that last scene where all the police officers are surrounding the barn. The barn sequence? Oh, yeah. yeah. It's just great. It's so tense, and it's just amazing. When you see his footprints come out in the snow, mm-hmm. and he gets shot, and you see that indent in the snow, you're like, wow. Not only are you amazed by like how cool that effect is, but you're amazed that they got him almost because the whole movie he's escaped capture. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, I don't know, just a great movie. Yeah, it really is great. It is very entertaining, and like again, like Frankenstein, like the other Universal monster movies, with the exception of Son of Frankenstein, it's a really brief movie. It's about hour and twelve minutes or something. So it's we're not wasting a lot of time here. <laughs> you know, it's it's efficient storytelling. Yeah. It's a it's a fun movie. I like it a lot. The cops are a little bit too goofy here and there. I think there's one cop that I I'm just like I, I don't like this guy. Everyone else was kind of funny. <laughs> um and then I think the um I think some of the I, I as much as I love Claude Rains, I, I think some of the supporting acting was a little kind of weak. I mean, I just hate Uno Connor, whether it's the Sobriety Franks, I just can't stand that woman. But other I than her, stand I mean every time she screamed. Yeah, well, yeah, it's really. Lo- Although I liked when the uh, when her husband was just like, ah, shut up. Like, I liked their <laughs> yeah. kind of relationship, where a she completely you know wore the pants in that she was the one who was like, hey, he owes us money, you need to go get it from him. And then I also <laughs> like that she very clearly annoyed the hell out of him, and he just didn't like her all that much. Like, like yeah. when he had a like a bruise on his head. And she's, like, screaming as if he's dying. Like, he's just sitting there drinking his gin, and he's just like, oh, leave me alone, <laughs> lady. Like, I do like that stuff. But I, I think the um, I think the big three of the Griffin personal life connections are kind of weak. Their yeah, Gloria Stewart is kind of, she's just panicking. And, and it's, it's that type of, and this is just more that period of movies like the 30s the maybe the early 40s but that style of acting like the constantly panicking and worrying like i feel like that's how all women acted in those movies Mm -hmm. you know what i mean so i i can't say gloria stewart's any worse than others but it's just like it's old i've seen that a bunch it hasn't aged well 
And then I, I think her father, the angel Clarence, just doesn't do much. And Kemp, his character is more interesting because he's got a lot more to do. But I don't think it's the best performance. Yeah, I guess he's okay. Yeah, I mean, again, the person who really steals the show is Claude Rains, you know. I, Absolutely. Like, that, that's definitely it. i got a question for you. Don't you think it's kind of strange that James Whale directed a movie where the... He directed a movie where the antagonist was not really a monster or where... Well, I should just say Frankenstein, where Frankenstein was kind of on the fence of being a monster and just um, a yeah, he's misunderstood. trying to cope. Yeah, and he's, it's one, the King Kong. It's it's that classic thing. Yes, exactly. But in this one, the Invisible Man is just such a fucking dick. <laughs> like, throughout the oh yeah, movie. I mean he's like <laughs> genuinely evil. I like that. Yeah, I don't think it's strange. I think it's just different, and and it's I like that too because I was talking about like everything with Griffin's personal life, his fiance, his mentor, his co-worker like that stuff is all like straight out of frankenstein like those characters might as well be the same as dr waldman and i think elizabeth was the fiance in that one i don't remember the friend's yeah. name but like those characters are are basically the same so i like that the character the villain here is very very different i guess yeah it was just neat to have somebody so i, I guess villainous and somebody who was very so unapologetic pronounced. yes exactly yeah yeah i i really liked that yeah, he's wonderful. He goes, I mean, he goes full supervillain. I mean, he doesn't, I guess it's more just like his megalomaniacal rants about like how he could control the universe kind of thing. He doesn't like, what's, what's really the worst thing he does? Like, yeah, he, he sends he, a guy he, he over derails a cliff a train in a and car. kills a hundred people. Oh, that's right. Yeah. We skipped a lot of this. <laughs> well, but even that though, that's, that's, yeah, that's right. He does, he does derail a train. We, we missed that in the, but that whole, that kind of montage sequence. He also pulls a Robin Hood. He steals money from a bank and just gives it to people. Yeah, yeah. Like, so there's... <laughs> Nobody right. He, I forgot about he derails a train. Okay, I'll take that back. Yeah, uh, he he's killed more, Fra- more people than Frankenstein did, for sure. Frankenstein's monster, pardon me. Well, yeah, I mean, yeah, but he drowned a little girl. There's no little girls on that train. It's just model people. <laughs> you don't understand. It's, it's different. It's just model people. <laughs> yeah, you're right. You're right. Yeah, it was just great, and I loved the setting, uh, which was kind of split between Sleepy English Village and then, I guess, Kemp's house. Kemp's house is incredible, by the way. I don't know what the hell field of science he's in, but damn. Optics, <laughs> I guess? I think they would call that... That's. I think that's... It's called optics in the book, if I remember right. Hmm. But anyways. Yeah, <laughs> just great, just great. All, like, all the, all the stuff with Claude Rains mixed with the effects, mixed with the pretty good script, I mean, all... Again, all geared towards uh, old Claude over there. For me, it just made it completely enjoyable. I loved it. Okay, Patrick, uh, I guess uh, we're done with The Invisible Man. So let's move on to a movie that came out about 50 years later, completely in a different vein of cinema. I, you, you might even struggle to call it a work of cinema. Oh, come on. <laughs> no, listen I, listen, I enjoyed it. The, 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 this is no screwballs. Okay? <laughs> why, why are you hating on independent filmmakers? I'm not. I'm not. This is no screwballs. But it is. I mean, it has more nudity than screwballs, and that is Dolomite from 1975. Uh, yeah, I don't think screwballs had any nudity in it, did it? Oh, it did. Screwballs had a shit ton. Are you kidding me? No, I. Yeah, maybe you're right. Yeah, I don't see. I don't remember screwballs. That much <laughs> what are you thinking of? This so is like this is a scene at the drive-in theater and everything. Yeah, is that the only one? No, it was everywhere. It was the the, the guy giving the breast exams. Male nudity in this one. 
Oh yeah, that that's right too. That did happen. Yeah. Okay. I'll <laughs> put a pillow. I'm not gonna. <laughs> okay, I'm not gonna retract my statement. I'm just gonna power through it. Anyways, Dolomite, 1975, directed by Rudy Ray Moore, uh, who wrong. Uh, well, sorry. Yeah, it, it was written by him, and it was co-directed well, yeah, but he by didn't him, wasn't direct it? it? No, it was directed by Derville Martin, who plays Willie Green here. Oh my God, really? Yeah, and supposedly, and again, I don't know if you've seen the Netflix film My Name Is Dolomite. No, I haven't. It's really great. I would recommend it. But supposedly the deal was like Derville Martin. I don't know if he's like a movie star, but he was like a fairly big name. He was in a lot of black exploitation movies. He was in like some more mainstream stuff. He actually was Al Jefferson in two filmed, but ultimately not picked up pilots for what eventually became All in the Family. Wow. So that's that's some rotten luck to eventually lose that role, I guess. But I mean, he he had a, like a good enough career, and apparently, according to that movie, is Rudy Raymore. Obviously, Rudy Raymore is a comedian. He doesn't know a thing about filmmaking, but he runs into this guy and he's like, "Hey, you want to be in this movie? We'll let you direct it too." And that was all it took. Again, according to that movie, which that movie's a work of historical fiction if you want to say but huh yeah i'm looking here i'm looking at it's it's you're right it's directed by what's the name derville derville martin Durville produced martin. by rr R. moore screenplay by jerry jones story by rr R. moore jerry <laughs> so, jones owner of the dallas cowboys that's yeah, right yeah that one the same one rudy ray moore plays this badass motherfucker yes pimpin kung, kung fu, fu learning beaten yeah pimp you know and, uh, he plays the coolest character ever. Like this is this is like if you're writing a script and you want to be awesome, this is how you're like, okay, <laughs> he's irresistible to women. He knows kung fu. He fights yeah. people. He's hilarious. He's a comedian. Apparently, they don't introduce that until like the second half of the movie. But I actually I have something to say on this, but but I'll touch on it at the end. Yeah. So you're right. He's he's kind of like the perfect cool guy but unfortunately this perfect cool guy is stuck in jail and i think he's serving something like 20 years for yeah uh, it sounds right for stealing furs like fur coats and for possession of narcotics (laughs) this is the best scene when they when they show the flashback to him getting arrested this is my favorite scene of the movie it's a shame it happens so early i I mean there's good stuff later but this scene's great yeah, well, it's it's so great because it's so awkward. Like, <laughs> Dolomite's leaving his house, and this cop approaches him, to, and he's like, Hey, come on, Dolomite, open the trunk. I know you got something in there. He's like, I don't got nothing in the trunk. <laughs> he finally opens it, and it's just full of furs, and they pull out Coke. And then there's this really and, and, awkward... And, and then he's like, Oh, that shit ain't mine, man. Yeah, man. <laughs> yeah. Just... yeah. And then there's this really awkward kung fu fight where Dolomite just starts awkwardly kicking them. And he's not in the best shape. I'm not going to rag no, him because I think and, he's cool. And he also, more importantly than not being in the best shape, Rudy Ramore does not know how to convincingly throw a punch or a kick on screen. It's very clear in every fight scene he's in, and there are multiple, it's very clear he's, to his credit, he's trying to make sure he's not hurting anyone. But he does not know, or maybe Derville Martin, the director, does not know how to shoot that in a way <laughs> where it looks like he actually is hurting people. So yeah. it's embarrassing, it's pathetic, and it's wonderful. Dolomite yeah. as a movie, Dolomite maybe even as a character, is at its best when it's awkward. And this scene <laughs> is as awkward as it gets. I love 
Rudy Ray Moore's line delivery because he he's a very funny person actually I don't know if you've listened to any of his comedy stuff I mean some of it is literally in this movie they like pull that from one of his albums I believe oh yeah okay <laughs> he is very funny but as an actor he is not he's not an actor he's <laughs> he's definitely, he, uh, he definitely looks like a deer in the headlights in most shows. well yeah no it, it's just like every line he says is just like no trained competent actor would deliver the line that way (laughs) so even when he has like a funny line (laughs) the line might itself not make you laugh but how he delivers it makes you laugh like in this scene when they're when these cops or fbi guys are kind of cornering him and he's like oh that shit ain't mine and and then (laughs) they're like all right no you're coming with us you know we're taking you down you're arresting you for narcotics and he's just like you're gonna have to take me (laughs) it's just like no one else would deliver the line in that way it's just very funny and when it's like normal conversation he speaks like this all the time and there's a pause sometimes at irregular intervals yeah. Well, and I think that's the that's the comedy background because what he did, I don't know if this was popular for other comedians, maybe other black comedians at the time, but like his comedy was it was set with like jazz music in the background, or, but he would he would speak, but it would almost be structured like a song where there's like a little a, it's like a line and then a pause and then a line and and I mean, he would rhyme. And so I think that's why the line delivery is weird. He's performing as he knows how to perform. And mm. as he knows how to perform is doing that comedy. Gotcha. Okay. <laughs> so I don't know. But maybe yeah, not. Maybe he's just that. that awful of an actor. I don't know. Yeah. Well, here, I'm going to I'm gonna give a quick rundown, I guess, of the synopsis. And then we can talk about all the great scenes in this. <laughs> Going back to Dolomite in prison, he's brought before the warden. And uh, a friend of his named Queen Bee, I think that's her name, right? Yep. They're both sitting in the warden's office, and Dolomite's going to be released because for years, Queen Bee has been coming up to the warden and saying, Mr. Warden, Dolomite is innocent. He had these drugs and furs planted on him by some corrupt FBI agents. And now the warden finally believes him because they have an in with the FBI who seems to think that these claims are true. So they want Dolomite back out on the street to catch these guys. But also, the crime <laughs> in the area hasn't <laughs> hasn't lessened, I guess. It hasn't gotten any better since Dolomite's been locked up. It's only gotten worse. And Dolomite's nephew was shot and killed one day walking for Oh, yeah, no I reason. forgot about that. They mentioned that, like, once. They don't really go back yeah. to that, do they? Yeah, no, they don't. So, <laughs> I forgot so, about that. I forgot that that's part of the movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, like, Dolomite's upset. So he's like, okay, fine, I'll be let out. And they're like, okay, but nobody knows that you're out of prison essentially working for the FBI or working with the FBI except for you me the warden queen bee and the FBI guy that you don't know and he's like who, okay. who, and there's even a line it's like who will reveal himself later or something like that yeah yeah which spoiler alert this FBI guy looks a lot like Richard Pryor did you notice that he's got the same I mean, hair, hair same stash well, same hair same stash hair guy looks pretty really tall it. but okay. there's also another guy that knows he's out and that's the mayor but we don't talk about that yet because we don't meet the mayor for a while but in reality the mayor has kind of set him up to let him out so that they can kill him i think yeah i I was kind of confused by that to be honest i think so or no he let him out again right because didn't he pay bail because dolomite gets arrested later 
Yeah, I don't know. Anyways, yeah. So Dolomite gets out. Oh, by the way, we get this awesome opening with this awesome funk song. This, like, awesome Dolomite theme song. But after, I think, or I don't remember if this is after or before. Whatever, it doesn't matter. A Dolomite gets let out of prison. And these four women roll up in, like, a Cadillac or a Lincoln or something. And they give him clean clothes, like his pimpin' clothes. And there's a great line here where he's, like, getting naked, essentially, in front of all these, in front of, like, all the, the guards at the prison. And he goes, cotton drawers? I can't believe you brought me fucking cotton drawers. And he, like, throws them back in the car. And he gets dressed in his pimpin' suit to get in the car and then immediately get undressed and bang two women in the back of his car. As they're driving him back to the Dolomite house. Yeah, the Dolomite house, which, like, I was, this took me a while to, because I've seen this movie before, but it was a long time ago. But Dolomite is literally a pimp. Yeah. yeah. Right? Like, yeah. that's not just like, he's always a pimp in, like, no, he's, he's, he's a literal pimp in, the, pimp in this case. He's also a comedian. He's also a nightclub slash strip club owner, or formerly, because since he's been arrested, or since he's been in jail, they lost control of that club to Willie Green. Yeah. And then he's also, well, I guess now he's sort of undercover FBI, but not really. He's kind of just, like, released. Patrick, you can't forget, <laughs> yeah. he's also a kung fu master. I will, well, I was going to say that, but oh. I mean, that's not really <laughs> occupational. That's a hobby. All the other stuff is occupational. <laughs> yeah. Uh. But he's, he's got his like Charlie's Angels, like, cause he's, I guess these, all these women working for him, I guess they're prostitutes, right? Yes. But yeah. he also makes sure that they go to Kung Fu training regularly. Yeah, you know? well, I think I think it was when he was in prison, Queen Bee tells him, hey, well, well, you've been locked up. I've been putting the girls into kung fu training. Okay, yeah. All right, yeah, I guess those something. two things are easily connected, sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'm not really sure where to go from here other than, because there's just, like, a, it's like a constant barrage of different and interesting scenes that sort of ramble in a direction of the end of the movie. All right, so what's your favorite different or interesting scene? Let's let's do this again. Give me a second here. My, one of my favorite different or interesting scenes is when <laughs> uh, when Rudy Ray Moore is giving like that Titanic speech, that Titanic rhyme <laughs> to a bunch of guys in a parking lot before running into oh shit, what's his name? Uh, Creeper. <laughs> oh yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah. We'll have to talk about Creeper, but yeah, this this scene's great because this is literally like. This doesn't feel like it's part of the movie. This feels like people ran into Rudy Ray Moore while he was filming the movie, Mm -hmm. and they recognized him from his comedy albums, and they're like, here, are you Dolomite? And then he just goes, like, (laughs) it doesn't really belong in the movie. No, and it's like a five-minute scene of him kind of rapping i guess you can't really call it rapping it's rhyming it's it's proto rapping i mean snoop dogg and others have talked about rudy remora is kind of like the godfather of of rap yeah because he did the 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 rhyming thing and he set it to music he didn't literally rap i guess but there's a common link between those two things i guess yeah now do you remember the scene where (laughs) after he got his nightclub back he's gonna go out on stage but he has the dolomite dancers open for him and they're just doing like this tribal dance yeah Uh, it did like that was so bizarre like in a nightclub first off they had like this um performance by this kind of like funk band but one of the dudes is wearing like i can't even describe it like high-waisted pants that go up well past his waist he has like a silk cape but he has (laughs) 
<laughs> these like bands that cross over his nipples. <laughs> I don't. And then these tribal dancers come out and introduce Dolomite. I like it's there's just, just so much weird stuff in this movie, but I love it. All right, so can we talk about Creeper? Yeah, right? absolutely. Creeper, that guy. Okay. W- when we first meet Creeper, he is <laughs> ordering a hamburger. And this is like from from like a uh, a street food stand thing, and this is like the most uncomfortable scene in the world because this <laughs> actor, this actor feels like he's just he's not an actor he's like on something right dude he's jiving on some good shit That's yeah but it's so on. uncomfortable like he mumbles and he's like barely keeps his eyes open and the first time we see him it's like what is this and then later. Dolomite runs into him, and it, and we learn later, I think his name is Creeper or Creep or whatever, but Dolomite first calls him, like, the Hamburger... The Hamburger Pimp. Yeah, I was going to say the Hamburger Helper, but yeah, the Hamburger Pimp. And, I mean, that's a better name than Creeper, first of all. <laughs> but and then Dolomite has a conversation with him, and it's the similarly, like, this is uncomfortable. And then we see him shooting up uh, heroin, I guess, in the scene... Mm-hmm. And I'm like, did they get an actor? Did they get just a junkie to play this? Like, it, it's so uncomfortable. It doesn't feel like acting. But no. then I looked him up. I mean, he's this is the only movie that actor's been in. Huh. But he <laughs> lived into this century. So, like, most heroin addicts, if, if you're a heroin addict, generally you don't live that long. So, I don't know. I, heard I have no answers about, about Creeper. Well, listen, I heard if you quit heroin, it's like uh, it takes... It rolls you back like 25, 30 years. So maybe, you know, he's Well, it's also so just long. super hard to quit heroin, too. I mean, <laughs> but at, at any rate, I felt incredibly uncomfortable. And when those guys come in and, and shoot him to death, I kind of felt good for him. I'm like, oh, God, he doesn't have to live anymore. That's good for him. Yeah, yeah, it is great. I guess maybe I should go back to the plot because there's some stuff I want to bring up that directly references some vague plot points when dolomite gets out of prison it's evident as you kind of mentioned earlier that uh willie green has taken over some of his territory so dolomite's just in charge of a bunch of ladies he's the head pimp and queen b is his friend who is kind of like his second in command yeah queen b seems to have just about as much power as he does granted she had i mean that's because when he was in prison she had all the power but whatever yeah but Part of their plan is to take back this club that Willie Green took. Correction. That is yeah. Dolomite's plan. Queen Bee has nothing to do with that. You're right. You're right. <laughs> she she actually suggests against it. She's like, listen, the club's in the past. We we can't do anything about it. Yeah, actually, she's got a great line because, uh, you know, like 15 minutes into the movie when Dolomite goes, how come I we don't have my club anymore? You fucking screwed me over while I was in prison. And Queen Bee responds with, me and these girls had to sell puss on the corner trying to save your black ass. <laughs> That's one of my favorite lines. <laughs> also, <laughs> sorry, hold on. I'm looking at my list of favorite lines. There's another great line. And it says, uh, uh, do you remember when you first meet like the Black Reverend? And yes. uh, those corrupt FBI agents walk up. And the guy's mm-hmm. a pretty shady character. But one of these FBI agents goes up to him and says, you haven't seen Dolomite around, have you? And the reverend goes, no, I haven't. But if I see him, I'll tell him you're looking for him. And there's a pause in the FBI. And the FBI agent goes, thanks, reverend. That's mighty black of you. He's like, you don't want oh, to yeah, look around, yeah, do you? That... <laughs> yeah, what was he implying with that? I don't know. I don't know. But it was great. Oh, yeah. I spit my coffee out. It was great. <laughs> I enjoyed the first scene with those FBI guys because they, they, again, 
are after Dolomite and they find drugs under his <laughs> under the passenger seat in his car. Yeah. <laughs> and he and then they're like, So how do you explain this? And he's like, Another frame up like he like yells it or something <laughs> like that. Yeah. And then <laughs> So they don't arrest him for some reason. And as they turn to like walk away, then he Kung Fu kicks them from the back and he knocks them out. And then, <laughs> and then he dumps the cocaine all over them. But in a way where most of it ends up on his pant leg. <laughs> I know. Yeah. <laughs> because I, I think because of the wind and also the pants are kind of like the bell bottoms, like yeah, a little yeah. looser at the bottom. But <laughs> then he just like walks and he just drives away. And like the scene was great it went on for way too long where it's just like once it gets to the like can we edit this a little faster when he's pouring the cocaine on them I know, but it's what? just great again dolomite is at its best when it's most awkward and that scene is is very awkward and i mean i don't know if you noticed but it's it's pretty noticeable when he goes to kung fu kick one of oh the, the, uh, the kick agents? to the face on the yeah. second guy oh he definitely misses might not have been within 15 inches of the guy's face yes <laughs> no, it, it, no. that one's very bad that's so that's the worst movie kick maybe i've ever seen it's such a good kick i love it oh my god yeah this is such a great movie uh yeah and then <laughs> while dolomite's kind of running around and uh trying to reclaim a club while also trying to i guess move willie green out of his territory he's just like crossing paths with a bunch of women who he i, I wouldn't even call it, he's seducing he's just like they're just jumping into his arms but yep. <laughs> at one point he gets arrested and he gets out on bail and uh this uh, i guess like this old flame comes to pick him up at the police station and they just go immediately to the bedroom but uh <laughs> <laughs> after they have sex she says something i forget what it was but he turns and he just starts smacking her doesn't he and he's like oh you said that i'm gonna i'm gonna fuck you really hard and he just starts smacking the shit out of her and then we get this like this sensual close-up of their faces as they're banging it was just such an awkward scene too yeah like, that just... they, there was definitely an implied playfulness in their relationship that didn't really translate to playfulness at least for a few seconds <laughs> yeah <laughs> um, yeah i know i know exactly what you're talking about yeah, yeah. oh then... i remembered my favorite line possibly my favorite line it's this it's the same scene with those fbi agents when he kung fu kicks them but when they first pull him to the side and confront him over the drugs and they're like man dolomite you think you're just so cool walking around with all these these black bitches that <laughs> that work for you and then he just stops them and he's like you forget about the white ones <laughs> that was great yeah i know it's such a ah, dude it's so bizarre but it's so great and yeah. and to be fair i think there is only one white woman in, that she, works for him she's in the very beginning and she gets her well kid she, off. she's in the kung fu uh seminar or the, the kung fu lesson or whatever later oh, too is she? yeah she's definitely in there yeah, well, it's weird because, so uh, a scene that we skipped over, or I skipped over, I should say, at the beginning, after he gets let out of prison, I guess they're driving back to his pimp headquarters, his pimp HQ. They're tailed by some bad guys. I'm not sure who they are even. But after he, like, he, he's he's banging all these women in the car, and one of them is a white woman, and uh, he gets out of the car with, like, a machine gun, and these bad guys roll up, and he blows them all away. And all the women get out of the car, but there's no white woman anymore. She's gone. <laughs> Like she she got lost in the transitions. <laughs> I guess I didn't notice that, but also this scene is so awkward because when they realize, okay, oh Dolomite, we're being we're being followed, and so they pull off the road, and it's like, okay, what are they going to do? They're going to do something clever here, 
But no, they don't. It's just Dolomite <laughs> just walks away and I guess comes back. Like that's yeah, how they out get of the out bushes. of that situation. <laughs> he just yeah. he just walks away and then he comes back. And he's got a machine gun. Like I was expecting them to do something like clever. Yeah, it's so bizarre. It's great. Another great scene too is anything with the mayor is bizarre and Oh, it's High Pike from Hack Lantern fame. Yes. Yeah. Well, Willie Green is working for the mayor of whatever city they're in. I think it's LA, right? I, Southern I California know. somewhere. I'll allow it. I'm not even really sure how they got on the same page, but it was like the mayor helped get rid of Dolomite, so Willie Green, who was at first a friend of Dolomite, but then became a rival, so, so he could like gain more territory and money and stuff. And then when Dolomite's out of prison and when Dolomite takes the club back, Willie Green approaches the mayor at his house and says like, hey, I need you to get rid of Dolomite. He goes, yeah, 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 don't worry about it. But <laughs> the guy's just such a rat looking, you know, High Pike is just so weird looking. I'm not even sure what to say about him, other than he's the only male character who's fully naked in this movie. You get full. I was going to say he has the most daring scene in the entire film <laughs> because the camera just lingers there. He is completely naked. He's got a towel kind of covering his junk, but it's over his shoulder. So, like, all he needs to do is move slightly, and suddenly, you know, everything, you know, all is revealed. And it's like, yeah. it's such an awkward scene. Like, couldn't we have blocked this differently or just had him put the towel on earlier? Yeah, and I don't get what the point. Yeah, yeah, I, I, yeah it's so bizarre. Yeah, eventually the the mayor gets killed by secret FBI agent who's not a secret agent, but I think comes across as a cop or something to Dolomite. Yeah, he just kind of shows up in the movie at some point. It's, it's, he just kind of enters. He He's not really introduced into the story, I don't think. I think the first time we see him is when he goes to talk to the Reverend, who is also a great character. I like when he first meet the Reverend, he's like preaching against the cops and stuff like that. He's like, we got to get out there and beat their rat asses and stuff like that. And then the FBI agents walk in and he switches like the sermon over to something extremely like <laughs> Christian, <laughs> like something in the Christian tradition. Uh, and they're telling him to cut the crap and stuff. But yeah, I'm not really sure. The movie just kind of comes to an end when, when after Dolomite has his club and Willie Green has been killed. How does he die? Do you remember? Okay, we can get to this because it's very unclear how he dies at first, I guess. But so this scene, this is after Dolomite does his comedy thing. This is Dolomite's former club, Willie Green's current club, which is now Dolomite's current club because oh, he right. yes. found the money in the carpet. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so there's an action scene. There's fights. I mean, I don't know much about making movies, but I know if I'm <laughs> shooting a big fight scene where there's a lot of different things happening, a lot of different people fighting, I would not shoot it this way. I'll just I'll just <laughs> put it that way. Because there is like roughly equal time devoted to like four or five different fights. Yeah. And really you gotta pick and choose. You can't show everything, you know? You gotta show us what's important. And the Dolomite stuff probably has the least attention paid to it, and it's all Dolomite from shot from behind. And I'm not, I, I mean, normally when you see that in a movie, you, you figure, oh, it's a stuntman. In this case, I don't think it was. I just think it's poorly shot, and that is Rudy yeah. Ray Moore, but, you know, they just didn't know how to shoot it. So he's fighting Willie Green and some other guy. There's a, an awful lot of attention paid to the fighting chef. <laughs> yeah. They're too yeah, much. The kung fu cook. <laughs> yeah, because this stuff is like, who are these people? And he's fighting like Willie Green's 
cronies and stuff, but like, what? And then <laughs> in kind of the main area of the club, I mean, we have more of a connection to these people, I guess, so I'm more okay with cutaways to them than I am to the cook. But it's basically, it's it's Dolomite's, like, Charlie's Angels, like, Kung Fu girls. Yeah. And they're just fighting guys, and it's awkward, and it's embarrassing, and it's wonderful. But <laughs> yeah. Willie Green and Dolomite, when they fight, so Dolomite punches him, and he, like, sticks his hand kind of, like, in the belly area, and then it's, they cut away from it, and it's very awkward, and then all of a sudden, Dolomite's hand is covered in blood, and he's, like, wiping it on, on like, his breast. And then they cut to Willie Green, and he's got, like, exposed guts or something. <laughs> yeah. And then and then the yeah. FBI agent comes in <laughs> and is like, oh, my goodness, Dolomite, are you okay? And then he shoots Willie Green, and he's like, there, now it's on me and not yeah. on you. Or he's like, now it's yeah. not on your conscience or something. It's like, what? That's yeah, not great. how that works. I also want to... <laughs> so I think as, as to how Willie Green actually died, I can't say for certain, but again, from the movie Dolomite is My Name, this appears to be a scene that was highly edited around because at least according to that movie he literally pulls out his intestines <laughs> in the scene and i guess it just got edited from the final film but again wow. work of fiction i don't know i also i forgot how that scene started or like more specifically the fight between willie green and dolomite dolomite oh yeah that just kind of happens i think it begins with Dolmite sitting down at like the table in the club because Willie Green shows up on the opening night of of it being Dolomite's club again. I think he says something. I think Willie Green says something like, "Can I buy you a drink?" Like after they chat for a bit, and he goes, "No, I don't want no drink from you." And he stands up, and then Willie Green pulls a gun on him, and Dolomite runs into his dressing room, and Willie Green chases him. But when Dolomite gets in there, he turns the lights off. And then when Willie Green comes in, he just starts shooting at, like, the far wall. And then Dolomite comes up behind him, and that's when they start fighting. You're like, what the fuck is going on? <laughs> Although, I mean, I love this sequence as, as horribly shot and edited as, like, all the big fight stuff is. This is really fun and exciting. And it's kind of disappointing that this isn't technically the climax, because there's still the resolution to come with the mayor later. But, like, this feels like the end, you know? It does, yeah. Did we get the car chase when fake Richard Pryor was chasing the mayor to the airport? Because didn't the mayor run out of his house after that hooker killed his wife and then he killed the hooker by strangling her to death? Then he ran out of his house, hopped in the car. Then the F secret FBI guy hopped in his car and we're like, we get this kind of car chase where they're driving down streets and then they end at the airport. And then as the mayor's hopping into the plane, he just kind of pops him a few times and he <laughs> dies on the wing. Yeah, I mean... Listen, I want my killers to have their guts and intestines ripped out by yeah. Dolomite, who's awkwardly kung fu fighting. That's that's how movies should end. And you're right. Unfortunately, it did end like that. It ended in a kind of stranger way, where Dolomite's taken to the hospital, but he still has this hit out on him. This group of guys, these goons, show up. And the plan here was that they're going to move Dolomite to a different hospital room, so these guys go into the wrong room, and then the FBI agent and Dolomite can jump him and kill him which happens and then the crooked fbi agents show up and attempt to kill dolomite but then the real fbi agent who's not a crook stops them and they get arrested and that's how it ends that that he, who's not a crook line reminded me of do you, how, how did you feel about the biting richard nixon uh social commentary they had oh. in this movie? <laughs> there's, was... there's like two richard nixon references <laughs> yeah that was great <laughs> Yeah, that was so weird. I forgot about that. 
Yeah, you know, was nineteen seventy five Watergate is fresh on everybody's mind and everything. Yeah, was it the Reverend and the Mayor talking about Richard Nixon? Yeah, because the Mayor puts the puts the uh, the, the two fingers up. up on each hand. Yeah. He does that thing, and then I think it was the Reverend said something like, "You know, if the President is allowed to do Watergate, like, you know, what does that say about? I don't know. He's doing something, but I I, I agree. I think it's in his sermon. Yeah." Well, I thought it was what America needed in order to heal in 1975. <laughs> Shut up. Uh, well, I guess that's an end to Dolomite. A strange end to kind of a strange movie, but a movie that really inspired a lot of other black exploitation stuff, I think. And as you rightly pointed out, inspired a lot of uh, rappers with Dolomite's hot takes on the Titanic. Yeah, Snoop Dogg's talking about him all the time. He mentions him in a number of songs, I know, so. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> maybe maybe it's just Snoop. I don't, <laughs> I don't know. Well, what are your final thoughts on Dolomite, Patrick? Well, I enjoy Dolomite. Like, it's not a good movie. But one thing I actually do like about, like, genuinely like about it, like, not like as in this is so awkward and uncomfortable that it's enjoyable I like the idea of, like, Dolomite being this, like, folk hero. Mm -hmm. Like, just everyone knows him. He's just, like, he's the, I mean, aside from the fact that he's, like, the platonic ideal of a man who knows kung fu, who's irresistible to women, you know, all that stuff. All that kind of, like, wish fulfillment for, like, Rudy Ray Moore kind of stuff. I just love that he's just, like, even just the name. Like, everybody's everybody in this movie has heard of Dolomite, knows who he is, knows the stories, knows the legends. Like, I just like that kind of thing in a movie. Yeah. He's this, like, Robin Hood figure. I mean, not, not like, literally in the Steal from the Rich and Give it to the Poor kind of thing, but just, like, a, <laughs> he's, like, that legend thing. Yeah, and I guess that kind of ties into something I was looking up, because I would have called this, like, um... A self-indulgent movie, much in the way that Neil Breen movies are, you know, or I guess The Room. But I looked it up, and you're right, Dolomite was kind of this folk hero kind of kind of thing where Rudy Ray Moore, when he was working as a comedian, and he'd already put out a couple albums as a musician, I think. And, yeah, that sounds right. Yeah, and he was hanging out in L.A., and there was, I think the way he tells it is there's... A Some crazy, homeless guy. Yeah, a crazy homeless drunk junkie named Rico who would talk about Dolomite and like rap about Dolomite. So he took him back to his house one night and got him all liquored up and gave him gave him dope and stuff. And then he just let him record a bunch of Dolomite stories. And then from that point on, he just kind of took the persona and ran with it in comedy circles for these, I think for three albums. And then after the third album came out, he started working on the Dolomite movie. And I actually have a quote here from Rudy Ray Moore. I wasn't saying dirty words just to say them. It was a form of art. Sketches in which I developed ghetto characters who cursed. I don't want to be referred to as a dirty old man, rather a ghetto expressionist. At first I thought he was playing the Dolomite character like he wishes he was the Dolomite character. And you know, like this is the perfect character for somebody who's a little self-absorbed. But I think he was doing it more as like a comedy piece. Whereas, like, somebody like Neil Breen is doing it because he genuinely thinks he's that person, you know? Yeah, I agree with that. I think Dolomite is a comedy character. And the weird thing is that I don't, I mean, I've listened to some of the comedy stuff and I don't really understand, like, some of that stuff's funny, but I'm like, what, why, what's the importance of Dolomite to this? You know, it's like, you could kind of just be saying this. And, and, And it's like, here, it's like, okay. But when you put Dolomite in a comedy movie it's like how 
is he funny? He's 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 not that funny. What makes him funny is Rudy Ray Moore, because Rudy Ray Moore's insane line delivery is what makes this movie very funny to me, as well as kind of the ineptitude in shooting the fight scenes and stuff like that. Yeah, I guess for me, I thought it was really funny because I thought Rudy Ray Moore was like thought this was the person who that he wanted to be. But after learning that it was just this character, and he also played him as a character, not as somebody who he actually wanted to be. Uh, well, I think I think he does want to be this guy too, but I think he just recognizes this isn't really who I am. But there, I think there's a bit of both. Yeah, I'll, I'll agree with that. But for me, that kind of gave more of that folk hero vibe to this movie, and I really appreciated that. And I, <laughs> it kind of took it to a whole nother level for me. I actually, this is not my favorite Dolomite movie. I prefer the Human Tornado, which is the sequel to this. <laughs> I think that's a better movie. I don't know if I don't know if that's a minority opinion. I really don't. I don't know how people view Dolomite versus the Human Tornado. You know that great debate that is probably <laughs> waged on for decades. But to me, it's about the classic Dolomite moments, and this has the "You're gonna have to take me" where he awkwardly kicks someone into the trunk and stuff like that. It has like you know things like that, but that one has that one has the real classic moments to me. That has the Human Tornado has the bitch are you for real it's got <laughs> the sex scene where the ceiling or the <laughs> falls on them i mean like that to me is what dolomite is all about but i mean this this movie's good too it's got its moments for sure just nothing as great as bitch are you for real well that's it on dolomite i uh, i enjoy it and um you enjoy it too but it's not as much as human tornado i haven't seen any of the other uh, rudy ray moore movies so but i am monkey uh, hustle sucks human tornado's great pd wheatstraw is pretty good those are, the, those are the big four that I've seen. So, Patrick, out of uh, both these fantastic movies, uh, which one do you prefer? Which one do you like more? I like The Invisible Man more. Maybe even a lot more, but I just I just really like that movie. Dolomite's fun. It's just, to me, it's not as entertaining. Jim, what about you? I would actually say the exact same thing. The entertaining thing for me about Dolomite is how weird it is and how... <laughs> And how weird Rudy Ray Moore is, and Creeper, and uh, all these oh, kind of like, side I, characters. Oh, I did not enjoy <laughs> Creeper. I felt so bad. <laughs> I know, but I definitely the better movie, and something that was more uh, enjoyable to watch was The Invisible Man. So, Jim, how does this work to you as a drive-in double feature? I think it works perfectly. Just kidding. No, uh, <laughs> I don't really think there's uh, there's much going on between these two, and uh, I would struggle to what find. Does that mean? Well, I, I, I just well, there's plenty that goes on. Well, <laughs> between them, yeah. But there's nothing that really kind of... There's no similarities that you can draw between them other than both being movies, you know? And for me, that's what being a good double feature must have. All right, I think this is a fantastic double feature. No, you I think don't. I do. I think you've got two very funny movies. Funny in different ways, sure, but funny movies. And I think just between the two of them, you've got the entire the entirety of what you want out of a drive-in movie is in one of these two movies. Yeah, it's a 30s horror movie, so it's not truly scary today, but I personally don't find most modern horror movies scary either. So it's like you get your scares and your thrills in The Invisible Man. You get some laughs. You get to marvel at some great effects, if a little dated, but still great. And then Dolomite, you you get your awkward sex, <laughs> you get you get your your nudity, you get your kung fu, which is kung fu is a huge part of drive-in movies. Like we need more of that. 
And then you've got your weird laughs, both intentional and unintentional. And you've got your weird Rudy Ray Moore yelling. Yeah, it's it's like these two movies together. This is everything you want. And it's only about two hours, 42 minutes. Like, it's not too long either, which doesn't hurt it. Well, I was... <laughs> I'm actually surprised you said yeah. Well, because I was watching Dolomite thinking, you know it would be a great pairing for this? <laughs> Game of Death. You see? <laughs> you got two Kung Fu movies going at it. <laughs> God, we need we need to watch more Kung Fu movies. If, if you're going to just compare any Kung Fu movie to, to <laughs> Game of Death, the weird Photoshop experiment from 1978. Well, exactly. That's, but see, that's why it would work so well, you know, because it's this weird Photoshop experiment from 1978. And this is this weird black exploitation Independent uh, film experiment, yeah. So, Patrick, what are the movies we are watching next time? All right, well, we are returning to Camp Crystal Lake with Friday the 13th <gasps> Part 2. And then we are following that up with the Vincent Price horror comedy classic, The Abominable Dr. Fives from 1971. Oh, my God. That'll be a fun one. It should be. I haven't seen Fives in a while. It's It's, it's been a while. I'm interested in revisiting that. But, yeah, any Friday the 13th or at least any Friday the 13th prior to part eight, I'm very excited for. (laughs) I actually don't mind part eight. It's just, (laughs) it's not the same thing, but yeah. So that'll be next time. Until then, be sure to rate us on whatever podcasting platform you listen to us on because it always helps us out. And reach out to us if you want to. I don't know. We're lonely here. (laughs) If you're willing, yeah. Yeah, if you're willing. If you want to talk Dolomite, if you want to talk the human tornado. Or, you know, if you want to talk about why you think we're wrong and any conclusions we come to. I'm open to, uh, to be criticized. When, when did we come to a conclusion, really? Well, you know, I mean, you know, if they, if they, work, as good, if they work as good movies together or not. All right, we'll see you next time. <laughs>